The Gospel Part 2. Last week we looked at Part 1. What we believe about Jesus is revealed by our actions. That's the big idea. What we believe about Jesus is revealed by our actions. Um, I like the bow hunt. Now, when you preach, you have to be aware of your context, the culture, right? The, the word never changes. The, the meaning of the text never changes. Whether you're preaching in Asia or Africa or North America, it doesn't matter, right? The, the word is the same. However, uh, how you choose to illustrate said word, well, you need to be aware of your context. For example, if I was preaching in Africa, I would not use an illustration based on American football. They would have no idea what I'm talking about. Okay? It just wouldn't work. When I was a youth pastor in Washington State, just north of Seattle, I remember I was preaching to a group of like you know, 150 high school students, and I began my sermon by using an illustration based on hunting. They had no idea what I was talking about. What's that? It didn't go over well. But I felt like in East Texas, I can talk about bow hunting, and most of you will be familiar. Is that okay? Oh, maybe not. Well, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I like to bow hunt. When you shoot a deer with a bow, right, even if it's a good shot, even if it's a mortal wound, you got lungs, you got heart, that deer is still going to go 50 to 70 yards, right, before it expires. Now, if you're hunting in the late afternoon or early evening and you shoot a deer with your bow, you're going to have to track that deer, right? And you're going to have to use a headlamp and flashlights. And several weeks ago, I was hunting with Clark, and I was bow hunting, and he was up in a buddy stand with me, and a doe comes out at about 27 yards, and shoot the doe with my bow, that rhymed, and I could tell it was a good shot, and the doe took off into the woods. It's getting close to dark. I think we had about 40 minutes left of shooting light, and so we wait. We give the deer about 45 minutes, and then we come down, I give him a flashlight, I have my headlamp, and what are we looking for? This might be a little graphic. We're looking for blood. We're looking for blood, which is a sign of death, right? We're looking for signs of death. And Clark found the deer. It was so cool. Uh, I let him kind of lead the search, and he followed the blood trail. We followed the blood trail for about 40 yards. This may be the last time I use a hunting illustration, but we're going to see how it goes. You're going to see why I use it here shortly. We follow the trail for about 40 yards, and then it just stops. And it was good blood for 40 yards. I knew this deer's dead. But it just stops. I'm like, man, what's going on here? And Clark says, Dad, look. And maybe 15 feet ahead, the size of a piece of pencil lead, there's a spot of blood on a leaf. And he saw it. And it picked up again. Then 20 yards away, there's the deer. So Clark was the hero. In the same way, here's why I use this illustration. In the same way, God uses his word to shine in our lives, to reveal what? To expose what? Sin. Signs of rebellion. Sin, which are signs of death. And when this happens for the believer, we are called to confess said sin and turn from it. And this is a regular part of the Christian life. Christ shines in our lives through his word to expose sin. And when he does that, what is the believer called to do? We confess said sin and we, we turn from it. This should be the normal or daily rhythm of the Christian life. This is what the gospel results in. Now, what else? 
What else do we learn about the gospel in our passage? Last week was the gospel part one. Last week we learned in John 3, 16 and 17, the message of the gospel. Can I read it again? This will be context. This is John 3, 16 and 17. We know this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but what? In order that the world might be saved through him. That's the good news message. Amen? So last week we looked at the message of the gospel. This week our focus is on what the gospel does in the lives of those who respond to it appropriately. So last week, what is the gospel? This week, what the gospel does in the lives of those who respond to it appropriately. So I want to begin, I have two points. I want to begin by looking at the two responses to the gospel, the two responses to Jesus. There are only two responses to Jesus. And what are they? There's belief and there's unbelief. That's verse 18. So our first point is based on verse 18, the two responses. Verse 18, whoever believes in him, who's him? Jesus is not condemned. Oh, if you believe in Jesus right now, that message should fill your heart with such joy, knowing that if you believe in Jesus, you are no longer condemned before God. Amen? That is justification by faith. We'll come back to that. But... Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So what we see in verse 18 is that there are two responses to Jesus. There's belief and there's unbelief. And these two responses result in different consequences and different behaviors. Let's start with belief. Belief. Whoever believes in him, and again, we have already established that him there is Jesus. Whoever believes in Jesus is not what? It's not condemned. Now, faith, like love, as we saw last week, has an object, right? Faith has an object. Here, the object of faith being emphasized is who? Faith in Jesus. Again, what does it mean to believe in him? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? The verb used for belief or faith in John's gospel is, you ready? Pistuo. Everybody say pistuo. It's good. It means to believe something to be true and hence worthy of being trusted. Listen, there's an emphasis here on trust. It's not just mental assent. It's, it's trusting something. It's holding on to something. Again, pistuo means you believe something to be true and hence worthy, worthy to be trusted. And again, what we've seen in John's gospel, who you trust, you follow. Who you trust, you follow. And what we've learned in John's gospel up to this point is that faith follows. Everybody say faith. Faith. It follows. Faith follows. It's more than mental assent. Faith is allegiance. And this is further seen by the particular tense of the verb used for believe, right? Tense matters in Greek. The present tense is used here, 
and I've said this probably a thousand times already in the two and a half years I've been here, in Greek, whenever the present tense is used, it denotes what kind of action? It's ongoing. It's continuous. Our faith is to be what? It's not a one-time thing. Yeah, yeah I believed in Jesus you know, 20 years ago. No, I, I believe in Jesus. I trust in him now, today. So to believe in Jesus is not a one-time thing, but an ongoing posture of trust and confidence. Faith is confidence in Jesus and his saving work to hold us up. Remember the chair illustration? When I sit down, when you sat down, I didn't see anybody get down on their hands and knees this morning and examine their chair. What did you do when you sat down? You sat down. You trusted the chair to hold you up. That is a picture of faith. When you believe in Jesus, you're confident that because of who he is and what he did, he will hold you up forever. Amen? So if you want a definition for faith, faith is confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ. All right, already we've seen the promise of faith. What does is, what is faith promise us? We saw this last week in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him, what? He sent his only son, but whoever believes in that son, what? What's the promise? You're not going to perish. You're not going to be eternally cut off. You're not going to spend forever in hell. Instead, if you trust in Jesus, God's one-of-a-kind, unique son, you're guaranteed your promised eternal what? Life. We spent time talking about the quality of this life last week. What did we learn about the quality of this life? It's with Jesus for how long? Forever. And it will be increasingly glorious. Every day we'll see more and more of the immeasurable richness of Jesus Christ. That's Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. But here's the question. What allows us to step into this life? This should concern you. Because the Bible is clear, sinners cannot be in the presence of a holy God. It's true? So what allows us to enter into God's presence forever? The Bible clearly teaches that sinful humans cannot enter God's presence. So what's the relationship between faith in Jesus and the eternal life promised to those who believe in Jesus? Verse 18 answers that question for us. Are you ready? The one who believes is not what? Is not condemned. Listen, if you're a Christian, you know that to be true. Oh, there's no greater news, amen? The one who believes in Jesus is not condemned. The verb condemned comes from the Greek word krino. It means to judge a person to be guilty and liable of punishment. Not, you're not just guilty, but you're liable and deserving of what? Punishment. Who is that? Who's worthy of punishment? Who deserves punishment? All of us. Every single one of us, because we're all what? What's our common denominator? We've all sinned against a holy and just and good God. But... This is no longer the case for those who trust in Jesus. Again, this is just, you know, we, we credit Paul with this incredible doctrine of justification by faith. Listen, it shows up in John 3. This is justification by faith language. Through faith in Christ, a new verdict is spoken over our lives. Amen? What was the previous verdict 
spoken over our lives, and justly so. Guilty. Guilty. You know, to be justified is to be declared innocent or righteous before God. Matt Carter writes, we, he's talking about Christians, we are no longer guilty. If you trust in Jesus, we are no longer guilty. Our sin has been removed, and nothing can be held against us. Jesus did for us what we could not possibly do for ourselves. Now, what's the other response to Jesus? There's belief, and what's the consequence of belief? No longer what? Condemned, which means if you believe in Jesus, you're declared righteous or innocent before God. You're justified by faith in Jesus. You're forgiven. You're a part of God's forever family. What's the other response? There's faith and there's, there's unbelief. It's verse 18b. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Those who believe, not condemned. Those who don't believe, condemned already. Did you get it? Yeah, that's, that's the text. Those who believe in Jesus, everybody say, not condemned. Oh, let's go home and celebrate. Now we're going to stay here and celebrate, right? Your leftovers can wait. Those who believe, not condemned. Those who don't believe, condemned already. The gravity, the gravity of the sin of unbelief is grounded in the final phrase of verse 18. Because, listen to this, because he has not believed in the name of the what? The only, it's that same word, monogeneus, we saw it last week. The only, unique, one of a kind, nobody like him, son of God. The one who doesn't believe is condemned. Why? Because he's not believed in God's unique, one of a kind, nobody else like him, son. Who's that? Jesus. Recall what we learned last week. We talked about the result of God's love. For God so loved the world that he, he gave Didomai. And what did that word mean in the Greek? If you weren't here, let me remind those who were here. And if you weren't here, let me educate you. That word to give denotes not just generosity, but sacrifice. Okay? What about the word only? His only son. Monos, monogeneus, unique, one of a kind. So let's put it together. God, in his infinite love, generously sacrificed his only, unique, one-of-a-kind son for who? For us, for sinners. Those who do not believe are condemned already because they have spurned God's amazing love. They've rejected God's most precious gift, his only son, the Son of God. It was reported years ago that a well-known pop star dismissed the Mona Lisa, as a piece of junk. Now listen, I, I'm not a, an art critic. I, I didn't go to school for, for art, but I've seen the Mona Lisa at the Louvre in Paris, and it's incredible. I mean, everybody agrees it is a work of art. It's beautiful. But this well-known pop star, ah, it's a piece of junk. You know what? This didn't tell us anything about the Mona Lisa. Instead, the pop star told us much about himself. F.F. Bruce, I love Mr. Bruce. F.F. Bruce is a, uh, a well-known New Testament scholar 
from the mid-20th century over in England. He's since gone to be with the Lord. But when many were going liberal, he stayed true to the gospel message. Listen to what he famously said. The man who depreciates Christ or thinks him unworthy of his allegiance passes judgment on himself, not on Christ. One more time. And it's the same with the pop star, right? Ah, it's a piece of junk. Well, you're not telling us anything about the Mona Lisa. You're revealing much about yourself, right? You know nothing. The man who depreciates Christ or thinks him unworthy of his allegiance passes judgment on himself, not on Christ. To reject Christ is to reveal one's true spiritual state before God. John 3.36, it reads, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son will not what? Will not see life, because God's wrath remains on him. Therefore, to not believe in God's one-of-a-kind Son sent to save sinners is tantamount to self-condemnation. Let's compare the two responses and their consequences. To believe in Jesus is to not be condemned. Amen? I don't want to be condemned. I want to be with my Lord. And I will be because I've believed in Him. Amen? It's true for you as well. If you believed in Jesus, you've trusted in Him. Now, the verb condemned appears in the present tense, which means that the believer in Christ now stands righteous or innocent before God. This is not simply a future verdict to be spoken over the believer, but a present reality now. I'm not condemned now. Amen? If you're a believer in Christ, you're not condemned now. That's your reality now. In the same way, the one who does not believe stands condemned now. That is the present verdict spoken over their lives now. Again, this is, why, this is why the church must preach the gospel with such urgency. Preach the gospel with urgency. Emphasize the seriousness of the unbeliever's state apart from Christ. Because what are they right now? They're condemned. They're not just going to be condemned. They're condemned now. What do they need? They need the gospel message so that they can believe by God's grace and not be what? Not be condemned. Let me end our first point by asking this question. Where are you looking today for right standing with God? Now, if we ask the world this question, you're going to get dozens and dozens of answers. You know, Where are you looking today for a right relationship with God? If you're looking to anyone or anything other than Jesus, then you stand condemned before God. You are in danger of God's forever wrath against your sin. Now, what are these things that people tend to look to for right standing with God apart from Jesus? What are they? I think for most, I think this is true for most, it's the lie that we're decent and generally good people, right? And what we do is this, we we compare ourselves with the worst people imaginable. And then we think to ourselves, you know what, I'm I'm pretty good compared to most. I'm a pretty good person, 
when I think about it. Not only is this prideful and arrogant, it's just plain wrong. It's wrong. It goes against the clear teaching of Scripture. All of us, everybody say all of us. All of us are born with the same verdict spoken over our lives. All of us stand indicted under the Word of God. The Bible's testimony is clear. Let's just look at Romans 3. Romans 3, 10 to 12, none is righteous. Paul's not being hyperbolic. He's not exaggerating. You're all bad. There's a few good apples. No, none. None is righteous. No, in case you weren't listening, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Romans 3.23, many of us have heard this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Only those who trust in Jesus for salvation from sin get a new verdict spoken over their lives. No longer guilty but what? Innocent or righteous. As we already saw, verse 18 presents us with justification by faith. Whoever believes in Jesus is not what? It's not condemned. Friends, you can go home today thankful. I don't care who you are. If you're a Christian and you heard that verse, you can go home thankful today. Amen? Okay. I was reminded today that because I believe in Jesus, I'm no longer condemned. You could fill the rest of your day up with prayers of thanksgiving for that good news. Amen? And yet, the good news gets even gooder. That's right. I said gooder. The good news gets even gooder. What we learn from our passage is that the gospel not only provides forgiveness, right standing with God, but transformation as well. Amen? I say that a lot. The gospel does two things. It provides forgiveness and transformation. And this brings us to point number two, two behaviors. That's verses 19 to 21. We saw two responses in verse 18. We're going to see two behaviors related to the two responses in verses 19 to 21. Let me read these verses quickly. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I love how our passage ends. We'll get there. What's the relationship between verse 18 in verses 19 to 21. Here we have described the fruit of unbelief and the fruit of belief. These are the behaviors that correspond to the differing responses to Jesus. Right? Those who refuse to believe in Jesus and stand condemned are described in verses 19 to 20. Those who believe in Jesus and are no longer condemned are described in verse 21. You know, this is a major theme in the writings of John. And not just John, but the whole Bible. Namely, this recognition that there are two camps or two kingdoms and two diametrically opposed behaviors or practices 
related to those camps or kingdoms, right? Let me give you an example. I want to start with John's gospel here. In our passage, we have those who believe versus those who do not believe. We have those who aren't condemned versus those who stand condemned. We have those who are of the light versus those who are of the, the darkness. Now, if we just go a few chapters ahead to John 8, in John 8, we have those who are of the devil versus those who are of God. In John 9, we have those who are spiritually blind versus those who see. You know, we see a similar division in 1 John. I love 1 John. On Wednesday nights, I'm teaching through 1 John and 3.11 for our adult Bible study. Little plug there. <laughs> in John, 1 John 1, we have those who belong to the darkness versus those who belong to the light. In 1 John 1, we have those who deny sin versus those who acknowledge their sin. In 1 John 2, we have those who belong to the world versus those who belong to God. Again, in 1 John 2, we have those who are antichrist, which means opposed to Christ, versus those who abide in Christ. And then finally, in 1 John 3, we have those who are children of God versus those who are children of the, the devil. Again, the, the primary division is between believers and unbelievers. Where are you? Where are you? Where do you stand? Let's start with unbelievers. According to verses 19 and 20, those who refuse to trust in Jesus love the darkness and pursue evil works. They love the darkness and they pursue what? Evil works. They not only hate the light, but retreat from the light for fear of their deeds being exposed. Now, again, this sheds light on the seriousness of unbelief. In our passage, if you've been listening, the world is on trial. Who's on trial in our passage? The world. And the condemning evidence continues to be mounted up against the world. The world's in bad shape, really bad shape, according to our passage. To begin, rather than loving God, who loved the world, John 3, 16, the world loves the darkness, the present evil order opposed to God and ruled by self and Satan. Isn't that ironic? One more time. Rather than loving God who loved the world, the world instead loves the darkness. The irony of unbelief is tragic. We saw this back in John 1.10. Recall John 1.10. He was in the world. Who's that? Jesus. And though the world was made through him, what? The world did not know him. Jesus made the world, and yet the world does not know him. But then what do we see? Because God loves the world, and again, we established last week that world in John refers to sinful humanity, right? Because God loves the world, he sent his son into the world to save the world. But the world rejects God's gift of salvation. Those who refuse to trust in Jesus prefer a world where they rule and not God. How do we know this? What is the evidence? The text says because their works are what? Their works are evil. Their works correspond to the kingdom they prefer. These evil works dishonor God 
and reveal one's wicked state apart from Jesus Christ. This is our natural state apart from Jesus. Not only do unbelievers love the darkness, but they hate the light. Again, here we have established the gravity of mankind's unbelief. It's not just a refusal to believe, but it's adamant opposition against the unique, one-of-a-kind Son of God, Jesus Christ, sent by God the Father to save the world. And not only, again, listen to this progression of thought, not only do they love the darkness, do evil, and hate the light, but the unbeliever seeks to evade the light. They run from the light. Why? Who was this inherited by? Who does this remind you of? Running from the light, hiding from God. It should sound familiar. It's our first parents, right? Listen to Genesis 3, 8 to 10. This is after the fall. This is after Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, the Hebrew there can actually be translated in the storm. God is coming in wrath. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Why do unbelievers flee from the light? Why do you think? Why do unbelievers flee from the light? Shame and guilt. Here's the irony. The irony is that this shame and guilt can only be removed by coming to Jesus, by coming to the light. Why do unbelievers run from the light? Because of shame and guilt. Who alone can remove our shame and guilt? Jesus, who is the light. I love this quote by R.C. Sproul. He says, that's our nature. We are children of darkness. It is against the nature of of a child of darkness to come to the light because he knows the light represents exposure and humiliation. But not so the believer. Amen? We come to the light in confidence because what did we learn in verse 18? Because we believe in the one of a kind, nobody like him, son of God, we are no longer what? We're no longer condemned. Thank you, brother. We're no longer condemned. Verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What enables the believer to come to the light free from fear? What? It's what we've learned already. The believer is no longer condemned, but righteous before God. There's confidence, not in self, but in the perfect Savior and his saving work. Therefore, the believer doesn't cower in fear before God or flee from God, but comes to the light in this for the glory of God, as we'll see shortly. Furthermore, the believer does what is true. Now, what does that mean, to do what is true? That's what the text says. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. Now he's talking about those who believe. Believers, right? Believers do what is true. 
To do what is true is tantamount to faith-producing works. What do we learn about those who believe in Jesus? They do what is right and God-honoring. They seek to please the Lord. The unbeliever is marked by evil works, whereas the believer is marked by doing what is true. This expression means to act faithfully or to work truth. Furthermore, and this is, this is staggering, it's easy to read over this and to miss it. Furthermore, the believer seeks community with the Lord. What does the text say? But whoever does what is true comes to the light. The believer comes to the light. But why? Why do we come to the light? So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The believer's ultimate goal is whose glory? God's glory. God's glory. The believer in Christ refuses to boast in self. Instead, he or she acknowledges that even the good works they do are done in the Lord. This is what the gospel does. Let me review quickly. Let me summarize. This is what the gospel does. It brings right standing with God. Amen? You're not condemned if you believe in Jesus. It empowers good works. And it makes the goal of these good works the glory and honor of God. One more time. Again, last week, what the gospel is. This week, what the gospel does. What does it do? It brings right standing with God. It empowers good works and It leads to this new goal, this desire that we now do our good works, not for self-recognition, but for whose glory? For God's glory. Conversion is similar to jump-starting a battery. When was the last time you had to jump-start a battery? I did about a month ago. It's a hunting story. I'm not going to tell you the story because I get one a year maybe from now on, okay? But what can a dead battery do, friends? It's not a trick question. What can a dead battery do? Nothing. Nothing. Why? It's dead. (laughs) The kids get it. Come on, adults. It's dead. An external source must first act upon it to give it life. And when this happens, when this happens, the battery is no longer dead and is able to function differently. The vehicle is transformed. Similarly, humans are naturally dead, spiritually speaking. We can do what? Nothing to save ourselves. As we've already learned in John 3, the Spirit of God must enter into our dead hearts, making us alive to trust in Jesus. And when this happens, when this happens, not only are we justified and forgiven, but we're made alive and thus empowered by the Spirit to live differently, to do what is right and God-honoring instead of evil, dishonoring works. Again, the good news of Jesus provides both forgiveness and transformation. Amen? Let's end with some application. First, if you're not a believer, I want to begin by addressing those in this room who may not follow Jesus. You've not trusted in Jesus. If that's you, please listen. If you're not a believer... I entreat you, I plead, I beg, trust in Jesus. 
for right standing with God. There is no other way. There is no other way for right standing, a right relationship with the God of the universe than to trust in Jesus who lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, and then rose again, proving that what he did worked, proving that all his claims are true. If the tomb was filled with a dead body, there's no good news. But because the tomb is empty, we can know that we know that the cross worked. Amen? So I entreat you, unbeliever, trust in Jesus for right standing with God. Leave your sin behind, the sin of unbelief and rebellion against God, and come to Jesus in faith, trusting in his saving work to make you right with God. Will you come to the light today? We behold the glorious and beautiful Savior Jesus Christ and trust in him for salvation from sin and God's eternal wrath. Now this is humbling. It's a humbling thing to come to the light and admit you're a sinner and that you need a Savior. But again, what did we learn? Only in doing that will our shame and guilt be removed. I love the Beatitudes, the blessed are statements of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. I love the very first one. This is Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy, to admit that you can do nothing to save yourself or make yourself right with God, only Jesus. Amen? All right, let me address believers now. This is for Christians. Application, a few things. First, continually. Continually come to Jesus for fellowship with God. Come to the light to commune with God. As we learned in our passage, the believer in Christ confidently comes to the light to fellowship with God. We know, we know that our sins have been taken away and we come to the word of God to hear from the Son of God. What does doing what is true amount to according to the opening chapters of John's gospel, right? Those who believe do what is true and they come to the light. What does that amount to doing what is true according to John's gospel? What we've looked at so far, two things. Okay, this is what doing what is true amounts to. Following Jesus and helping others to follow Jesus. That's what we've seen in John chapter 1, 2, and 3. Following Jesus amounts to coming under his word. Going where he says go and doing what he says do. Helping others follow Jesus amounts to sharing the good news with the lost. Calling unbelievers to come to the light and discipling fellow believers by reading God's word with them, praying with them, and helping them to fight sin. One final thing. When we come to the light, our sin is exposed. When we come to God's word, it shines on our hearts revealing our sin. When this happens, what do we do? We confess and repent. This ongoing work of confessing sin and turning from it should mark the believer's life from now until glory. Amen? Again, how have you responded to the good news of Jesus Christ? And what does your behavior reveal about what you believe? 
Those who love the light live like the light, and those who love the darkness resemble the darkness. Those who love the light, those who love the light and live like the light do so out of gratitude and a desire to honor and glorify the light, Jesus Christ. Amen? All right. Let me pray. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the good news encapsulated in John 3, 18 to 21, that not only does the good news produce forgiveness, but transformation as well. We thank you for the consequence of those who trust in you by grace, that we are no longer condemned. And we thank you that those of us who are no longer condemned on the basis of our faith in Jesus Christ are empowered to live differently, to do good works, not to gain right standing, but to show you that we are grateful for the right standing you've provided through your son, your only son, your unique one-of-a-kind son. Father, I pray for those in this room, those who are gathered this morning, may we not spurn your love, God. May we respond appropriately to your love by trusting in the Son, Jesus Christ, following him, going where he says go and doing what he says do. And Father, I pray that we would come alongside others, other believers in your church, helping them to follow Jesus by reading your word with them, praying with them and helping them to fight sin. And Father, I pray that we would leave this place, that we'd go into the world armed with the gospel message, with a sense of urgency, knowing that those who do not believe are condemned already, and that we would call them to turn from their sin and to trust in the glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, through your church here at Kelty's, please save many for your glory and our joy. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen.